Hey, you're listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colm Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Then join us as we bring together those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and also follow us on our social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations, my advising friends and family. My name is Matt Markin and welcome to episode 19 of Adventures in Advising. We are almost at the end of September. So for those of you who are a few weeks into term, we hope it is going well. And for those of you in Ireland, the UK and elsewhere who are going to be getting back, possibly starting on Monday, all the best for the new term. Now, I want to give a shout out to Brooke Tuska, who shared a post about Adventures in Advising on Facebook. She said, it's a great podcast and a good way to fit in some professional development. Check it out. So thank you, Brooke, for that. We appreciate that shout out. Shout outs, subscriptions, ratings, reviews, they all help others to find the podcast. So if you do find yourself with a spare couple of minutes, we definitely would appreciate if you could leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Well, actually, not even a couple minutes, really a few seconds to hit subscribe and rate the podcast. And if you decided to add a comment, altogether, that's less time than ordering food through DoorDash, Uber Eats or Grubhub. None of which, uh, by the way, sponsor this podcast. And also a shout out to Nakata Region 2 for reposting on their Instagram about episode 18 of the podcast and letting their region know about the first interview we had on episode 18, which was with Jonathan Halford from Auburn University, who's the conference chair of the upcoming Nakata Annual Conference. And it was about the virtual conference, and what attendees can expect from the virtual conference experience. Which is now just a couple of weeks away, October 5th to October 8th. And the theme is No Student is an Island, the rich port of advising and connection. Should be a wonderful virtual conference and you can go back and listen to that but let's talk about the interviews for this episode, Colm. Getting into today's episode, we have two fascinating interviews for you to enjoy with two very smart and insightful individuals. The first interview is with Sean Bridgen, who is now an associate director at Nakata, took up the post earlier this year, having previously worked at a number of institutions in Pennsylvania. Always enjoy chatting to Sean. He is wonderfully insightful and this interview is no different. So hopefully listeners will enjoy. 
right. First up, we have Dr. Sean Bridgen, who is the Associate Director for Partnerships at NACADA, the Global Community for Academic Advising, and an Assistant Professor for Graduate Programs in Academic Advising at Kansas State University. He previously served as the Inaugural Director of Academic Advising in the newly founded School of Computing and Information at the University of Pittsburgh. He's also serving as an Inaugural Excellence in Academic Advising Fellow and is a member of the NSF-funded Aspire Alliance National Change Team. Sean is a recipient of the Outstanding Advisor Award Certificate of Merit from NACADA, a past chair of NACADA's Theory, Philosophy, and History of Academic Advising Community, and a recent appointee to the Fulbright Specialist roster. Sean's research interests are studying higher education as a complex social system, the graduate curriculum of academic advising, leadership in higher education, and comparative issues in academic advising and personal tutoring. Sean holds a Bachelor's of Arts in Philosophy from the University of Pittsburgh, a Master's of Arts in Student Affairs and Higher Education from Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and a Doctor of Education in Administration and Leadership Studies, also from IUP. Outside of work, he enjoys learning about Italy, cooking, and cycling. Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Well, we're delighted to have the opportunity to speak to you, Sean. I mean, for Matt and I have the good fortune of knowing you a little bit, and we just heard how accomplished you are in your bio. But maybe before we delve fully in into that, um, for listeners, maybe we could take you right back to when you were first getting involved in academic advising. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey into academic advising? What made you want to be an advisor? For sure. Um, So I guess it all started when I was an undergraduate and I uh, got a job as a peer advisor for summer orientation uh, when I was at IUP. So I actually began my undergrad at IUP as well as a music major. And um, I really enjoyed working with other college students. I really enjoy, I worked in the career center um, as part of my job as a peer advisor as well, and um, learned how to score Myers-Briggs tests and use an old school computer program called Siggy Plus that helped people un- uh, do career exploration, those sorts of things. And I just thought it was really fun. And we also took a sort of a crash course in student affairs um, that was um, a semester long in order to be able to be to be um, prepared to to be a peer advisor. And so I, I thought that stuff was really cool and interesting and um, enjoy helping people. Well, I decided um, to change my major to philosophy and transfer to the University of Pittsburgh with the goal of becoming a philosophy professor. Um, being a first generation college student, I thought that, hey, you know, anybody with a Ph.D. can get a job being a professor um, that, you know, especially if I go to a good program, I'll be able to write my own ticket. Well, Pitt's program is very, very good. It's one of the top in the world. And um, I got a quick lesson in how few PhD or how few tenure track jobs there are in philosophy. Um, So many of the um, graduate students there who, again, they were coming from places like Oxford and Harvard and Princeton um, as undergrads and getting their PhD from Pitt. They they told me, they said, look, we're graduating from this program. And I think it was ranked number two in the world at the time. And they said, and we're really concerned about getting jobs. And I, I, it blew my mind. Again, as a first-gen student, I thought a PhD, you could do whatever you want. And so um, after after that and learning from them and really reflecting on what I wanted to do, I thought, I, you know, I want to work in higher education. Being a professor, um, uh, it would be awesome, but philosophy may not be the field for me considering the, the, um, the, the, the small, small number of jobs. 
So I think I'll go on and get a master's in student affairs so I can be an employee of a college and I'll get a PhD later and um, be a professor later. Well, um, during my master's program, I got uh, my main job was working in the registrar's office and I got very uh, involved in implementing student information systems because the school where I was working uh, had a student information system, um, an old legacy system that ran on a mainframe and I got into the implementing i don't want to i don't want to advertise for these companies but we, we all know the big players in those systems um so my first job out of grad school actually ended up as an assistant registrar working at a school out in idaho helping them implement a student information system and after a while we ended up back in pittsburgh here for uh family reasons and, and my, my wife found a job back here at home in pittsburgh and i ended up getting a job at the university of pittsburgh as an advisor and i absolutely loved it um, and, um, what, what I really loved is it was like going back to college every single day because I got to learn from my students, all the cool things they were studying, all the cool things they brought to the table from their high school education. Um, all the other advisors, um, most of the people in my, in, in my department had PhDs and they were from areas, um, as vast as Russian film studies to history, to, um, different foreign languages, uh, Italian, Spanish, and, um, biology we had a um an anthropologist so we, we would have lunch and something would come up in the news and you'd hear this analysis from all these just brilliant minds around the table so it, it was it was absolutely amazing and, and getting to work with just these really smart students that we had at Pitt it was it was really fun and I just fell in love with the field um however I still had student loans to pay and I had a chance to go um, work as a systems analyst once again um and uh the pay was better so I, I did that for a while and it, my wife, you know, driving home from work, she just said to me, she said, Sean, you know, you need to get out of this. You're, you're miserable. I can tell that you really miss your students. You really miss advising. And I reflected long and hard and realized, you know, I went to education to be an educator, not to be a systems analyst. And um, sure, I'll make a lot more money if I go to the computer out, but it just not, not wasn't where my heart was. So in about 2005, I decided to just go sort of all in on advising. And that's when I started getting I had gone to like a regional conference or something at some point, but in 2005, that's when I decided to really commit and really get involved in the CADA. Um, I looked on the website and they had this interest group in, in philosophy and theory. And there was this guy named Peter Hagen who was listed as the name um, to contact. So I shot him an email and Peter, um, boy, he couldn't have been kinder. We had this must've been a two hour conversation about theory, about philosophy, about, you know, my interest in it and, he he invited me to be on the steering committee for the interest group and and I think that's how it really all got started with Nakata. Um and uh eventually I decided to get that doctorate and I wrote my dissertation on on advising and uh got a chance to work with I, I got a new job at Penn State and it was a campus near Pittsburgh and I got a ch chance to really work with Eric White and Terry Musser um and those two um really took me under their wing and helped me to get more involved in Nakata helped coached me through my doctorate, helped to, um, you know, get me tied in with the, uh, Terry nominated me for the Outstanding Advisor Award. She also nominated me for the um, Advising Consulting and Speaker Service. And so I think that, that that's, that's, I think that's the story. And I think, you know, what, what really draws me to it is just my love of learning, my love of knowledge, my love of academics, and the chance that I get, I could, I could actually, I could be a big dork and study and learn all the, anything I want to learn because it all applies to advising and it, anything that advisors learn can help students learn more. And that's what it's really about to me is how, how can advisors help students learn more and get the most out of college? 
And that's a long answer, but I'm old, so there's a, it's a long story. <laughs> but it's a good answer. I mean, I was I was like, I want you to talk 20 minutes more about oh, this. Geez. But you, you were talking about Nakata a lot in there yeah. and how much it's helped. And now you are the associate director for partnerships within Nakata. And Abelita, congratulations on, on this role. Oh, thank you. Um, I know, I mean, it's well-deserved. And I remember when the Nakata message was sent out, I think I saw it on their Facebook page. And I was like, hey, that's Sean. I, I know him from the International Conference in Belgium. So I was like, how cool is that? So how does your, your role now as associate director, what does that entail? Well, first of all, let me just say it's, it's kind of like a dream come true. I mean, to, to be able to work with Nakata full time is an absolute honor. And every day I'm just so thankful. And I, I love what I do so much that sometimes my wife has to remind me that, you know, I need to go eat dinner, like that sort of thing. It, it's, it's absolutely exciting. And so what it entails really is, is building partnerships with um, other organizations, uh, with other institutions and, and sort of different different groups that are very interested in similar work to Nakata. And so what we find is um, a lot of organizations come to us because of the reputation that Nakata has um, due to folks like you, um, Colm and Matt, with the uh, wonderful work you've been putting out with the podcast, um, the research that gets put out by Wendy Troxel and the Research Center, the journal, um, all the webcasts and different professional development that Nakata has out there and, you know, nearly, geez, well, we have 40 years, I'm thinking 50 years of scholarship, but 40 years in Nakata um, has built such a solid reputation that people really want to work with us on things. So I can talk about some of the different partnerships we have if you'd like to know more about that. But that, that's, my, that's my main job is to help connect Nakata to other organizations and other groups that want to um, kind of to help us get our work out. And also, um, like I said, they come to us asking us for, for access to, to experts. Yeah, please feel free to talk about any of those partnerships. Okay. Well, one that um, is actually uh, something I helped to start, This there's a group called NSF. It's called Aspire, the Aspire Alliance, and it's, it's funded by NSF. Um, I got involved with this a while ago because it, it's just weird how these things happen. I had finished my dissertation, and I was just reading on the internet, Googling things about systems theory, systems change, systemic change in higher education, and I came across this group called the Accelerating Systemic Change Network. I wrote to them. They asked me if I wanted to get on one of their working groups. I'm like, heck yeah, this looks really cool. So, um, and then they they um, funded me to go to a conference with them down in New Orleans, and I met a man named Lucas Hill. And Lucas Hill um, was is involved with a group called CERTL, the Center for the Integration of Research, Teaching, and Learning, based out of Wisconsin Madison, and they were part of a um, a, a, a NSF includes grant that they thought I might be able to help with. So I then went to a meeting with this NSF group um, down in D.C. When that grant ended, um, the research that came out of that led to, and I, I only know part of this story, it's, 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 it's a very long, complicated story because it's a huge government grant, right? Um, the, um, some of the research that came out of there was that there are future faculty, i.e. Ph.D. students, who um, really want to get good at academic advising and inclusive teaching, but they're not getting much training or much experience with that while they're in graduate school. And um, so the NSF then funded this next grant to um, help to diversify STEM faculty. And um, there are many what they call change teams. One's called National Change, which I work with. One's called Institutional Change. And there's one called Regional Change. 
I won't talk about those two because they are, their scope is way beyond what I'm, what I'm working on. But national change is what I, what I, what I focus on. And we are really working to, towards providing strong professional development to future faculty and current faculty to help them become strong with inclusive teaching, research mentoring, academic advising, leadership, colleagueship. And um, we found that through, through the research from the prior includes grant that there are a uh, number of skills and competencies that if faculty improve in those areas, it can help them get better in all of those roles. So if, if you become, if you can become um, more um, aware of your own identities and you become more culturally aware and, and aware of intercultural dynamics, you can become a better advisor, a better teacher, a better mentor, et cetera. And so um, we, we are working together now to um, get out the word about the inclusive faculty framework. And Nakata has been completely instrumental in building this. And as, as a matter of fact, when they did the research on the inclusive faculty framework, they built a lot of it on Nakata core, core competencies. So you'll see, if you, if you look, start looking through that, you'll see Nakata's fingerprints all over it. So um, it's it's really cool to see um, the work that Nakata did um, being picked up by these groups that, you know, really we, we, had, we had no relationship with it before, but now we work very, very closely together. And that's one of the pre-conferences I'm doing, as a matter of fact, with the Aspire folks at, at the uh, annual conference in a couple of weeks, the, the virtual annual conference in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I love the, the way it all kind of serendipitously came together. I mean, it started out with you writing to, to this organization and from there it kind of snowballs and then the cat get involved. And I think that's very often how a lot of projects come to, to be. And it sounds like there's great work um, taking place there. And you mentioned the Nakata virtual conference, which is, is going to be taking place. And I know you have a, a couple of, um, and you have a pre-conference and you have a presentation, but maybe just before we dive into that, one thing when I was doing some research before we chatted to you, Sean, was you, you have presented at a number of Nakata annual conferences. And I want to take you back, if you can remember, to one in uh, 2008. And you presented about um, an approach for students to use technology to actively engage in learning. And I saw that and I thought, here we are in 2020 and this is what it's kind of the buzz right now is that we're all talking about the way we have moved to online learning to hybrid classes and everyone is looking at ways in which we can utilize technology to, to actively engage students in learning and I'm wondering and I know it's taking you back a long way and putting you on the spot a little bit but are there things you can think of that either you drew on in that presentation or that you have learned since and maybe advice for advisors as they look to engage students and to leverage technology. Yeah, sure. That, that was a long time ago. I think that was in Chicago. Um, and uh, I got to present that was my first presentation at an annual conference. Um, I think I presented with um, Art Esposito and Terry Musser and Wes Lipschultz, who eventually became my boss at Pitt. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, it, it was a, um, that, that was, that you know, of course that was, that's 12 years ago. And that means 12 years old technology at this point. And the technology I believe we were talking about there was web 2.0 technology, which is, which is a big thing those days. We were, I remember we were talking about, um, one of the things we talked about was delicious, which was a um, way of sharing 
almost like sharing bookmarks. Like I would like, say we were all working on something. We would all bookmark something. And Matt says, this is what I like about it. And Colin says, this is what, do you remember that? That was a long time ago. And Facebook was just a few years old. And Twitter had just started. And I remember at that conference, I created a Twitter account. And my first tweet was, I'm just, I'm tweeting to see what this is. And so, boy, have we come a long way since that. I mean, now Twitter's been used for many reasons. I don't want to get into in the political sphere right now, but uh, it, we, we, can, we can see that, that Twitter is um, kind of like a, I don't want to say a passe technology, but it's something that everybody knows. Um, Facebook is something that everybody knows, and these technologies have changed our lives completely. We talked about um, using Facebook as a way of engaging students. Um, we, we talked about wikis as ways of um, students sharing their knowledge, and wikis were kind of new, right? I'm not sure when Wikipedia came out, but that, that's the time I remember people talking about Wikipedia a lot and how do you use that same technology to help help kind of chronicle student learning and how can you use student blogs and things like that to help um, kind of help them think through. They, you know, one of the things we talk about with, with, with advising is um, integrated student learning, which Mark Lowenstein has been developing for, for the, his ideas on that for years. So how can you get students to use a blog or something like that to demonstrate that they are integrating their learning? Um, what kind of writing prompts can you create? So those were those kinds of those were the kinds of things we've talked about. We talked about back then, and today, um, you know, I'm a, certainly a George Steele fan. I think you both know George from the International Conference as well, and his work on flipped advising I think is really. Um, he might say evolutionary, where I might think it's revolutionary. He might say it's. I don't want to speak for George, but he, he talks about, you know, these are things they used to do in workbooks back in the 80s, <laughs> have students do things in a workbook before they came to their advising session. But now we can actually use the learning management systems, which were designed to th curate content, deliver content and assess student learning in, in different ways than like, you know, Facebook and um, those Web 2.0 technologies, um, even even the um, student monitoring systems, the early alert systems, all that, they, they, those, those are good for engagement, but they don't really necessarily um, help us deliver content or assess content. Um, the learning management systems were designed expressly for those reasons. And so that's where George is saying, let's use this if we want, if we want to, um, not that those other technologies aren't good, they're very good and they're important, they're part of a puzzle. But if we want to really want to focus on learning, well, let's learning. Let's use technologies that were developed for learning. So, um, I think that that's where um, where we've gone now. From sorry, going from that conference to today, um, the way I'm looking at technology is very different because um, largely because of the work of George Steele and his his um, the way he explains using LMSs to in, to teach students and to assess their learning. And it all goes back to that backward design that we you know, learned about in curriculum. 101, right? So it, it's it's um it's amazing that um we're basically using technology to do the, to to kind of expedite and modernize the way we engage students in their learning and assess what they've learned. Well, Wikipedia I think came out in 2001, which was about 2 years before MySpace. Oh, MySpace. I remember MySpace. Yeah, who was that guy, Tom? Tom, he was he was everyone's friend. Yeah, he, it was weird because he looked like I had a friend named Tom who looked kind of like him. I was like, what's what's he? What I thought it was, I thought it was my friend, my, my friend's little brother Tommy. <laughs> when I first saw Tom, he's famous. He is. Is he a real guy? He is. Yep. He he is real. And you guys probably interviewed him, right? <laughs> I think he's living the life of luxury somewhere. Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace for an enormous amount of money and it was just before 
Facebook went into the stratosphere and MySpace lost all of its relevancy. But he made bank and is living it up. Now everybody wants to be Tom's friend, right? Right. <laughs> so I guess kind of connected to with, with technology. I mean, you recently moderated a webinar, which was a joint presentation between Nakata and Noda, and that was called Leveraging the Advising Relationship to Support the Transition and Retention of Online Students, which, again, is something that's still relevant now. I mean, I believe this had over 500 attendees. Um, so was there anything from moderating that webinar that stood out to you that could be great takeaways for those of us in advising? The people who presented at that webinar were incredible. And the discussions they had with the, the participants, they were just they would, they would present a chat question and, um, and I would feed it to the panelists and they, they would respond to it. Some of the takeaways was the the equity issues that it, it's kind of like they're they might be hidden, but it's something that advisors have to be very very aware of. And so, you know, what if a student doesn't have a strong internet connection? What if you have a what if you have a student who's sharing a computer with four other family members, and you know, mom or dad needs to use the computer to do something for work, and the student needs to use it for school, and maybe the student needs to use it to talk to their advisor, and there's a dog running around in the background, and little brother didn't get his bottle yet and he's crying he's a baby like you think about all these equity issues um that that um i think advisors are aware of because we work with students all the time and we we know what's going on but i think for institutions to really um kind of pay attention to and make sure the students are getting the resources they need to fully um and participate in education even though it's clearly been disrupted um all over the world um and this this was Right after, you know, in March, when we all kind of had to immediately go home and all the schools were scrambling to get hotspots for folks. And some I've heard tale of students driving to the parking lot of their school to sit and get on the school's Wi-Fi to to submit a paper and things like this. So um, it was the equity issue that I think that really jumped into my consciousness during this, because I mean, at the time, too, I was working at, at, well, right before I worked sort of with Nakata, I was working at the University of Pittsburgh. These students were at Pitt, were their computer science majors, their information science majors. They grew up FaceTiming with their friends. So FaceTiming with their advisor was really no big of a transition, uh, not big, not a big transition um, for, for most students. Of co- but, but there were students who didn't have the resources at home to engage. And the, the concern is, how are we going to make sure those students are getting all the access they need to be able to successfully complete this semester? And and so um, some, some of the things that, they, that were talked about during that webinar um, really uh, brought me back to, to the, to those moments. So it's, I think that was the, the main, the main takeaway for me was how do we make sure we have equitable access to, um, to the university's resources during this pandemic. And it was a great session. And I th- want to say it, it's available for free on the Nakata YouTube channel. I could be wrong, but it, if it's there, we'll, we'll add the link in the show notes. No, you are correct, sir. It is for free. And it is all the YouTube channel. And we are that's another partner we're working on. Um, I just met with somebody from, um, her name is Megan, uh, from, from Noda yesterday to develop kind of our next steps. Because um, they we... we, we we share uh, values. We share interests in um, student equity and um, retention and student success and helping students transition. So there's lots of ways advisors and folks who work on, in the orientation space can work together to help do everything we can to create 
institutions to create programs, to create, let's call them an, an, an environments where students can succeed. And so um, I'm, I'm really excited about that partnership as this develops. So shout out to Megan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. And Sean, we hinted at it earlier, but we are recording this on the... 10th of September we the episode will be out on the 21st so by the time listeners are hearing this we're just going to be a couple of weeks away from Nakata's virtual annual conference and you have a couple of sessions maybe you'd like to tell us and our listeners a little bit more about uh, what you'll be presenting on for sure um so the first, I'll go in chronological order, the first um, presentation will be with um, my colleagues from the Aspire Alliance, um, Robin Greenler, who's from University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, part of CERTL, Don Gillian-Daniel, who is also part of CERTL at Wisconsin-Madison, and April Dukes, who works with CERTL, uh, the CERTL Network at the University of Pittsburgh in the School of Engineering. They have they have a research education, engineering education research center is where she works, and she has a PhD in neuroscience. Um, and Dawn's PhD is in molecular biology, and Robin's is in other in biology too, I think. But I can't remember which particular field. But they, they, these are straight up STEM people who are um, really edu- interested in, in STEM education. So they've they've kind of left the laboratory um, in their mic- microscopes and all those things that I. You know, I'm colorblind, so I always I could could never see well. So those those classes were not good for me when I was a student. But um, they said they left that 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 type of laboratory, and they're now in the in the education space, and they have done they're doing amazing work. Um, and they're they're applying their brilliant minds to to equitable teaching. And um, we we are going to be discussing this how during this pandemic how do we how can we teach equitably so we we are targeting our presentation towards obviously advisors um but probably uh, our audience will be faculty advisors people who teach full time but also are advising and also those who are advisors but work with faculty to help them become better advisors um and so we're going to be talking um about so that some of the equity issues we will be working on um we'll have activities to help them practice because we, we, we know that we educate, we educators, we academics love to get into the theory space, but we're, we're going to actually make them do stuff so they can get out of that analytical space and get into the doing space. Um, Don has a background in improvisational theater and he uses a lot of techniques from improvisational theater to help advisors, to help teachers um, get into the space um, of, of actually doing uh, during these kind of sessions that we will be working on. We'll be uh, introducing the inclusive faculty framework to them and um, again, providing uh, multiple ways for that, for folks to engage with the material and practice um, how they would handle certain situations. So um, we're, we're, we're um, we actually just met yesterday and we're kind of re- retooling some of it because it will be virtual and we are, we do want to include some of the, um, some of the issues of how do you teach equity, 
teach equitably and advise equitably during the pandemic. So that'll be fun. It'll, it's going to be three hours and it will be live. So that, that'll be interesting uh, to do it over uh, a Zoom. Um, and the other one is I'm, I'm actually partnering with my former colleagues at Pitt in the School of Inform- Computing and Information Advising Center. We are going to talk about how we used, how they use <laughs> flipped advising to um, really get students to think integratively about their education and to become polymaths. So um, the School of Computing Information is very invested in this idea of polymathic education, which they define as helping students to think across disciplines and find common concepts that relate disciplines. So the former dean, Paul Cohen, um, uh, he, he would talk about this this man is brilliant. He um he was one of he, he's kind of a pioneering artificial intelligence researcher. Before he worked at Pitt, he was a director at DARPA. I don't even know what he did, and I'm not even sure he's allowed to tell us what he did. But he he's does all kind of really advanced AI work. Um, but he said that you know when he worked at DARPA, he could see that it, sometimes it would take folks two months to even begin talking. What he would say the same language. So somebody would say a term from one discipline and someone else would use the same term from a different discipline. They didn't understand they were talking about different concepts, but then they would use, then there would be a concept they'd talk about, they'd be, but they use different terms to describe it, um, even though they were talking about the same concept. And so one thing he used, um, so he, he said, there's these things he, he calls them polymathic concepts that he wants students to learn. For example, networks. He would always say that you know, networks have a lot of hard math um, and statistics behind them, but when you can start to understand networks and see that they're everywhere, um, and he said, you can see that slime molds, he would talk about slime molds all the time. There's some experiment they did that they put something on a map and they put slime mold on this map and it the, the slime mold created the, like the, the ideal subway system. They're just, they're just on it. I forget how they did it, but it, it was amazing. And he said, if you can apply that same, if you analyze the, their process, you can apply that using computing. He said, when I, when I see students walk into a grocery store and they are trying to decide what line to get in for their cash register, he said, I want them to not see that as which line should I, I choose, but I want them to see this as a load balancing problem. And it's something that I guess the computer scientists think about. So um, he said, so and I want them to walk around campus and just, you know, look at a tree and look at a bus and look at the roads and think about how these, all these systems interact, because that's what he talked about is that the world is just full of interacting, complicated systems, which appealed to me since my dissertation was on you know, uh, it was more in social systems and what they call soft systems theory. His is more on the computing side, but um, boy, that that just really uh, appealed to me. So we we together developed some modules using the LMS there to help students understand polemathy, and we we asked them to write to write um, little mini essays um, that, that the advisors could then read before the, um, before the uh, advising appointment to see how are the students processing this information? How are they deeply integrating um, the, the knowledge from their classes? And, um, and of course, you know, what class do you want to take next semester, right? We always have to worry about that. But beyond the what class do you take, why do you want to take it? How is this going to contribute to your understanding of, of, of these concepts? So we, we would have them do things like you know, we would say things like, you know, what 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 problems intrigue you? Right, write an essay about that. What information do you think you need to solve those problems? And um, what impact do you want to make on the world? And when you choose this course for next semester, why, how does it fit into these areas? So that that's so uh, we were we were really. I mean, I say we were. They are. <laughs> it's hard for me to put myself in past tense. Uh, they 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 are. Um, when we designed it, at least the idea was to bring to life, Mark Lowenstein's vision 
of of um, integrative education. When you look, when you read his read his work on um, you know that advising a, a, a the aim of advising is really integrated in education. How can we how can we actually put that into practice and assess it and provide evidence that advisors are actually doing that? Because you know one of the big gripes um, that I have personally and I was guilty of it for years as an advisor is we're doing all this good work, but we have no record of it. The students can go out and tell you, wow, I learned all this cool stuff from my advisor, but you know, it doesn't show up in research. It doesn't show up in any reports that go um, to the administration. The administration just sees who registered and who didn't. Right. (laughs) And so, but, but, but there's so much richness that goes on in devising that we wanted to be able to use, um, you know, these technologies back to the technology piece to, to capture a lot of this great stuff that's going on. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see how that develops there at Pitt. Um, the people who are there are just incredible. The advisors who are still working there, Rachel and um, Chris, Rachel, Rachel Parks, Christine Pugliese, Ashley Christofferson, Danielle Richardson, they're all just phenomenal. And they're still working on getting this stuff together. Of course, you know, the, something happened in March, some, some virus I heard of uh, came and maybe delayed some of their plans, but they're building additional modules to help students with career advising and um, professional development, all sorts of other things. And so they're engaging, for example, career services, they're engaging the um, education abroad folks so students can start to incorporate these other resources um, into their into their education. Because as you know, advisors care about the curriculum, but we also care about the co-curriculum. What are you learning outside the classroom and how does that influence what you're, what you're doing? And it, call, I mean, call, I don't have to tell Colin. I mean, that's that's your life, right? Um, you do a lot of international education now, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I think I'm at a place, fortunately, in Dublin City University where there is in an Irish context is different, right? Because generally it's it's much more of a train track system. Um, students don't have as much choice as maybe you have in the North American system. But DCU has the option for students to take a four credit module that recognizes work outside the classroom. So I'm really happy to work in an institution that doesn't just talk about holistic education but recognizes the importance of it and I think it makes an enormous difference to our graduates and graduate attributes. I agree <laughs> that, that's really cool. Oh by the way one of the advisors Ashley Christofferson I don't know if this can get recorded broadcast or not but she went to dcu as an exchange student ah okay well that, that's i hope i hope she enjoyed her time in dublin stay with us we'll be right back you love listening to podcasts but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast maybe you want to build a brand grow your business or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby whatever your reason for making a podcast buzzsprout is the place to start Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. She loved it. She loved it. She got to hang out there and she got to go to Denmark for a while too, but yeah. So So when... A prototypical polymath be Leonardo da Vinci. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard to. I think it's hard to get somebody from a an eighteen year old right out of high school to Leonardo da Vinci. But I think the idea is to build those. Are you familiar with the T shaped professional concept? I've heard it. Okay, so this came out of IBM, 
And um, there's a man at Michigan State who may have be he may be retired now, but his name is Phil Gardner, and he ran SERI. I th- think that's I forget what SERI stands for, but it's like Employment Research, um, Collegiate Employment Research Institute, maybe something like that. That stands for. And I got to meet Philip at a conference when I was at Penn State, and he talked a lot about this idea of a T-shaped professional, where students need to be deep and broad. And um, so we basically mm-hmm. translated that idea of polymath to um, T-shaped professional and talked about how, to, how, to, how would a polymath approach professional development. And so you get your depth from your discipline or multiple disciplines, and you get your breadth from your general education and from your um, co-curricular activities. Of course, there are other ways to do it too, but those are kind of the main things. And what, what Philip talked about was, you know, when you graduate college, you know, to be a big, strong, giant T, is, that's asking a lot for four years. But we want to build the bones so you can grow into a big T. So you want to build the little T bones. So whenever you when you um, go out of college, you have a lot to hang um, new information on. So you get to get deeper and deeper and deeper and broader and broader and broader. But the but, but getting students to think that way about about um, thinking not only about concept span discipline, but when you work, when you're in a job, you got to think across departments. It's the same. It's transferable skill, right? So. Um, you know, when I was working as an advising director, I had to think a lot about enrollment management, right? I had to think a lot since I had a background in registrar work. I, I was always processing in the back of my head, how is this stuff going to end up in the database? Are we capturing things the right way? So that ends up in the database, right? So whenever they report out, it's going to, it's going to reflect things accurately. You know, we, we in advising often encounter financial aid issues. And I think most advisors, I don't know what it's like in Ireland, um, Colin, and I, I know in, Many European countries and pretty much every other country I, I've worked with, um, the, the financial system is so different because students aren't carrying as much of the load um, and as, as they do here. But we advisors, we're always taught in, in the United States anyway is, you know, when it comes to financial aid, refer them to financial aid because their rules are complicated. They're changing all the time. And um, but we also know that students might not go see financial aid. So I think some some advisors will try to like learn a little bit, at least enough to make a good referral. I think that's really important. Um, so, we're, you know, my point here is that we're college is very, very expensive. And I think a lot of advisors are running tallies in the back of their head is how much is this going to cost if this student takes the summer class rather than just finishing it this semester. So we want to help students take that into consideration as well. The point here is that that a good professional has to be able to think across departmental boundaries and think about the organization holistically, um, think about the student and how they interact with the institution holistically in an advising context. And um, and so if you're a computer scientist, you're you're working as a a developer for some company, you can't just think about writing good code and using the right algorithms. You have to think about how is this going to affect marketing? How is this going to affect um, sales? How is this going to affect the accounting department? How is the um, how are the communications folks going to talk about this with executives? There, there are so many things that come down to that that there are very few things I should say that they're that they're so insular um, that you that you can only that you that you would only talk to people in your particular field about it, right? So we, we try to get that. I don't want to be a stereotype person here or, or perpetuate those, but I can. In my experience, computer scientists are very narrowly focused on computer science. And so to help them think, you know, no, it's it's more than learning Python really well or Java really. They get so focused on the languages. We want to say the language is a tool and how are you going to use that to accomplish a task, right? And so um, that, that's how we would we would take the idea of polymath and translate it to um, a professional development uh, 
context for them, right? Does that make sense? It does. That sounds like a signature trait is curiosity. Yes. Yes. Oh, wow. You asked about Da Vinci. My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Captain Tangent, aren't I? <laughs> so you previously chaired the Nakata Theory, Philosophy, and History Advising uh, Community. Yeah. And what one of the goals of uh, TPH is communicating the value and utility of theory and philosophy with the aim yep. of dispelling the misconceptions about them. So I don't know if that was a goal that was created when, when you were chair or if it's a new one, but what are some misconceptions that you can think of about theory and philosophy? Well, that's a good question. Um, and so I was on the steering committee for a while before I was the chair. So I, I was involved with it for many, many years. Um, but then so I just out of the blue got nominated for chair. And I was, okay, I'll run. And I got elected. But to, to answer your question, um, people think theory is irrelevant or it's just something to be thought about. And Maybe some folks think that, you know, it's not something I was ever, I ever excelled at, or it's something that's not interesting. It's not practical. How's it going to help me with my job? And they think, at least my experience is that people who are in, interested in theory might not be all that great to talk to, or might not be all that approachable. Um, so um, that's one thing that I, that, that I, I live, that I live in my head. I live in, in the theory world. That's, that's, I mean, honestly, whenever I pick up Plato and read it. It's like putting on a warm blanket. It makes me feel so comfortable to read philosophy. It feels like home. Um, some people open that that and it, 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 they don't like it or it, they don't. It doesn't make sense or um, nobody because nobody maybe ever taught them how to read Plato or something like that. Or um, so they oh intimidating. Sometimes people are intimidated by people who deal, deal with theory. Maybe because some people they've dealt with who are theorists aren't very kind. I don't know. But Nakata is so different. They so that it actually. That, talk about a misconception. It blows their mind when they can sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation with Peter Hagen or Janet Schulenberg or Hillary Himes or uh, Mark Lowenstein or Sarah Champlin Scharf. Like these are people who've written a lot on theory and they're the kindest, most generous, engaging people that you're going to want to meet. So that, 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 when we talk about dispelling some of the misconceptions, it's like, no, theory is accessible. You can do it. It is very important. And the people who write and think about theory are pretty fun people uh, most of the time. So um, I think that at least that's what I took away from it. And that's, again, that's, that's uh, what I think helped really hook me in with Nakata was um, my interest in theory and the people who were interested in that were so um, generous and, and embracing of, of new people. And so that, that, that was a big piece of what we were trying to do when I was the chair. And I know CJ Venable is, is continuing a lot of that. And um, I'm not sure what their um, strategic goals are this year, but I know that they uh, have a deep commitment to helping the Nakata members engage with theory. So I'm, I'm looking forward to see what CJ does with all that. Um, what, what a brilliant human being. Yeah, I, I think it's exactly what you're saying, Sean, in terms of Nakata facilitating people to engage with theory and making it less intimidating because it can be um, when you're dealing with the practical all the time and suddenly you're kind of confronted with the theory, you you wonder how you're going to deal with it. So Nakata does a great job and there's so many people involved in that. And I think the other national organizations are, are also doing a lot of work in that space, which is good to see. And that kind of links in a little bit in, in what I wanted to ask you about next, because um, you talked um, just a few minutes ago about the importance of, of working across departments. And you're somebody who um, I know is um, you reach out a, a lot, you collaborate and you collaborate internationally you, um, with, with colleagues across the globe. And I suppose I, I'm interested in 
hearing and, and I, 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 maybe there aren't concrete plans, but in your new role in terms of working with partnerships, then I suppose the fact that technology has become deregular and, and we're all working, you know, across the globe. And here we are sitting um, in three different locations as we record this. Do you think that the, I suppose there are opportunities for Nakata and for other um, advising organizations around the world to collaborate more closely and um, to work on projects? Yes, 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 yes. I think that I, and I think that is the case and I am um, very much looking forward to seeing how all these things progress. Um, yeah, it was only a couple of years ago that I was able to start getting engaged in the international community. Um, I had been wanting to for years, but I just did not have that opportunity. And so, um, geez, I guess a couple of years ago, I, I got to meet David Gray and Oscar, um, who I never want to try to pronounce his name because um, I can never get the Dutch accent right. Does anyone else have it? I was going to say, go ahead and try it. We won't record this part. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have to look at it for 10 minutes and practice 10 minutes before it comes out of my mouth. But, <laughs> but you know, I met them and, um, you know, Emily McIntosh and Penny Robbins, all, all these wonderful people. And uh, here's an example is we, we uh, recently connected the Aspire folks with UCAT because with Aspire, um, we put together the, the, uh, the STEM guide, it's called a guide to faculty advising for STEM faculty or something to that effect. And um, I talked to David about it at one of the conferences or in a Zoom or something like that. And I said, hey, check this out. Maybe you guys would like this. And he thought it was great. He said, this is really helpful. And I think we could use this in the UK. And so um, they are, um, they formed a committee, which I'm helping with, uh, but it's all, all UCAT people to kind of... Um, translate this to the context where it is more relevant in the UK. So they're going to change some of the terminology, some of the case studies, but a lot of the um, theory, a lot of the writing um, is directly applicable to what they're doing. So there's an example of a collaboration. And it was really neat. I met with a woman from Australia a couple of weeks ago who just happened to email the office and back and forth. We ended up having a Zoom meeting and she heard about the um, inclusive faculty framework through UCAT, which was really amazing. I'm like, so I guess they, they were, uh, this, this woman was watching a um, UCAT webinar or something, and they talked about the IFF, and then she said, what do you know about the Aspire thing? I'm like, I can tell you about Aspire. So um, I'm really excited to see how all these things take off. And I, I really think that inclusive faculty framework is going to resonate in a lot of countries around the world because of the ways that advising and the ways that faculty are integrated with what we would call advising in this country, and it might be very different. Sorry, the, the Faculty will be doing things that I can't get my words straight on this, um, but it, it's it's kind of a situation where the woman from Australia said, "What you call advising, we have three different people who do it. This person does this piece, this person does this piece, and this person does this piece." Um, and in England, I know that um, they call advisors personal tutors, and they're primarily faculty with instructional um, roles, but they also engage in what we would call advising. They call it tutoring, but it's very similar kinds of of work. But they also said there's more of a pastoral. Um, role that goes on with advising in the UK. And that's not a word that we that I ever heard used in higher education context here. Um, so uh, is that, it's Colin smiling. It, is that something that is used in, in, in Ireland, a pastoral role? Yeah, past, pa pastoral care would, would be a term that's used. And I, I do think that there are 
different terms for people and, and maybe they're doing slightly different things, but um, I, I, and maybe they wear slightly different hats in different locations. But I think the focus on um, students and student success and you can take that to mean any number of different things exists and um we had oscar on the last podcast episode and we discussed that a little bit around um advising around the the world and and different approaches and he had as oscar always does some fantastic insights to offer he is a, a man who just is a, a brilliant mind. So uh, I definitely for anyone who hasn't yet heard that, I would recommend going back and checking that one out because he, you will benefit from it. Now, Colm, I know a few Oscars. Which one are you referring to? Oh, he's good. <laughs> I, 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 in fairness, and I've, t- I've, I've said this to Oscar himself, his, his surname, he, it has the Dutch pronunciation, Oscar van den Vundhard. But I'm butchering it. But hopefully that Irish lilt will take the edge off of um, the the damage that I'm doing to his surname. Well, I'm I'm glad to hear that you're still cycling because I know that you're not as active on Twitter. But I do love your tagline on Twitter. It is academic advising is cool. So is riding bicycles. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> well, I think it's a good motto for for life, Sean. And um, this has been really good fun. It's been really insightful. I think we've covered a whole range of topics. And I thank you for taking the time to chat to myself and Matt today. And I want to wish you all the best for the upcoming conference. Well, thank you both. This has been an absolute pleasure. And um, yeah, there's so much more we could talk about. And I thank you so much for doing these podcasts. It's a service to the field and to the profession. Um, and I know that everybody Everybody I've talked to is very excited about your work. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sean, for joining us. I'm happy the stars aligned and we were finally able to make this interview happen. Lots of great takeaways from your interview and really looking forward to getting the chance to chat with you again. But let's roll right into the next interview. Who do we got? Our second interview is with Brian Kapinos, who is the Assistant Academic Dean at Elms College. And in this interview, we discuss advising systems, middle management, meeting the needs of students, and some of the challenges advisors face. And our next guest is Dr. Brian Capinos, who is the Assistant Academic Dean at the College of Our Lady of the Elms in Chicopee, Massachusetts. He holds a doctoral degree in educational leadership from the University of Hartford. Brian has worked in higher education for almost 10 years, holding various roles in advising as well as adjunct faculty roles at two Massachusetts community colleges. Brian is also an adjunct faculty member in the doctoral program for educational leadership at the University of Hartford. Brian's research and publications are focused on advising systems, middle management, and the coordination of advising services within post-secondary institutions. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you both for having me. Appreciate it. 
Delighted to have the opportunity to chat to you, Brian, and thank you for taking the time. I suppose um, before we launch in maybe to the the questions and, and your background and all that, uh, wondering how are, are things at Elms at the moment? Uh, are you guys back on campus? Is it a kind of hybrid? Um, how, are, how are things there? Yeah, so we've opened. Um, we currently are at a reduced capacity across the board. Um, so everything from seating all around campus in the classrooms and the library to the dormitories being at a reduced capacity, single rooms. Um, we're using the power of Zoom, um, as I'm sure everybody is around the world. Um, and so Elms has adopted what we call a high flex model where students uh, can either uh, attend class uh, with masks and properly socially distance, as well as zoom into class uh, with webcams, um, you know, and smart boards and things like that. So uh, this is my second week teaching. Um, I teach in our off-campus programs on Saturday, as well as for our traditional main campus population on campus. Uh, and so I've, it, it's worked out pretty well for me. Uh, the students are engaged. I think it's a technical issues aside sometimes that you have. I think the students are engaged and I think it's all about kind of creating that atmosphere for students both online and in the classroom to realize we're all we're all here together. Uh, and so it doesn't matter if you're on the screen or in person, we're participating through class discussion and sharing documents and, and, and Zoom rooms, uh, breakout rooms with students. And so um, it's, it's going well. I mean, this is the, we're about seven days in. Um, so, so far, so good, I guess, in the world that we're currently in right now. And can you talk to us a little bit about those who are listening right now that may not know um, about Elms College? Because um, I know for me, like I know Elms has over 50 academic programs, but can you give us a little bit more of a history about Elms? Yep. So Elms College is founded with the Sisters of St. Joseph. Uh, so we're a Catholic school in Chicopee, Massachusetts. Uh, we are a co-ed institution. We have about 1,500 students, I would say, uh, whether it's our traditional uh, main campus student population, our graduate programs, uh, or Elms College is also known for its satellite campuses uh, that we have at uh, several area partner community colleges, uh, where we offer Saturday classes for students who transition to Elms to finish their bachelor's degrees who have an associate's degree. Some of our largest programs, uh, we're well known, I guess, for nursing in our area, but anybody else who may be listening on the podcast, I think I have to shout out a couple more academic programs. Uh, social work is also another big uh, program here at Elms College, both for our traditional students and our, and our Saturday programs. Uh, so we offer a lot of uh, traditional and non-traditional programming, liberal arts programming for students. Um, and, you know, we're housed in Little old Chicopee, Massachusetts, for those who may be listening, it's just outside and just outside Springfield. So uh, we've been around for, I believe, almost 100 years, I think 1928 officially when we were uh, when we first started off in Chicopee. Obviously, there's been some expansion and buildings and things like that. Uh, but we're still a, a small private school really focused on, on student support. Uh, our retention rate, I think, uh, really exemplifies the uh where the institution is prioritized, its its area of uh, you know funding and support and ideas. It's, it's, it's focused on helping students. A lot of our students are first generation students. So, as our vice president would like to say, we have a, a diverse array of learners and different and diverse environments. So, 
that's a little bit about you know Elms College for you and certainly anybody that's listening. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that with us. And I know I actually had a couple of students from Elms come and study abroad in Dublin when I ran a study abroad program uh, a few years back. Wonderful. Uh, good, yeah, great, <laughs> great students. And uh, we obviously have uh, quite a few from the northeast of America who make their way over to Ireland to, to study abroad. Now, Brian, I suppose we, we've talked a little bit about the the institution, but for listeners, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about you and, and your journey into academic advising and higher education. Yeah, I went, I was, um, started off in community college uh, as a community college student at Holyoke Community College. I thought I wanted to uh, go into criminal justice because I, I liked Law and Order SVU. Um, you know, so a typical, I have no idea what I'm doing. I just picked a major. My mom dragged me there in August and I ended up at community college and, and I ended up getting integrated, uh, through their tennis program. Um, cause I love to play tennis, which really embedded me in the campus community. I think I found something that really resonated with me where I wanted to be in school. Um, and so I ended up graduating from Holyoke and going off to the university of Massachusetts, um, and deciding that, all right, well now I, I don't want to be a police officer. Um, you know, I want to be a lawyer. Uh, so uh, I took legal studies. I commuted uh, from Chicopee to Amherst, which is about a 45, 50 minute commute. I took uh, five classes a day on Tuesday, Thursday from eight o'clock to 430. It's a long day. Um, and I worked in a catering company and a bar to pay for tuition. So I never really got involved in developing my resume, never really got involved in being able to really get any sort of work experience. So I graduated from the University of Massachusetts with a great degree with a cum laude on my record and no work experience for anybody to hire me. Um, So I ended up staying at the bar. um, And I realized that my only way into moving anything forward at this point was to go to grad school. Uh, so I ended up signing up for grad school at Westfield State University, just up the road here in Massachusetts. Um, and through that time, I, I knew I had to do something. So I did a, a bunch of internships. Uh, for I worked for a union. I worked for a state rep in Massachusetts. I worked for a theater company doing grant work and development, which is quite possibly one of the most unrewarding things ever when you work on a grant for so long and then you submit it and then you get a no. Uh, it's just, that's <laughs> the most unrewarding work ever. Um, so, and then I finally ended up doing my final internship in the advising office. And I kind of knew that I wanted to work in advising because I kind of wanted to talk to students about not doing the same thing I did, you know, and at least trying in some capacity to be able to work some sort of game plan in before you graduate. And you're not stuck after your bachelor's degree, some student loans kind of bearing down on you trying to figure out how do I get a job? Um, so I graduated uh, and I applied for about six months, didn't get anything. Uh, higher ed's a tough world to get into, especially advising. So I wanted to work with students, um, you know, to help them not go down the same path that I did. And so, um, and again, as I mentioned, higher ed is and advising is a very tough and competitive world to get into. Um, I, I know for certain I've had friends try to get into advising roles and things like that. And it's just it seems like it's a naturally competitive area to get into in higher ed. And I got lucky on a grant um, at Springfield Technical Community College. It was a six month end of a six month grant that they hired a part time advisor. So I applied. Uh, I 
got lucky and got hired. Um, and that grant ended up being adopted into the institutional budget. And there started my career in higher ed um, as a part-time academic advisor working at Springfield Technical Community College, which is just down the road from Elms College. Um, and I was lucky enough to be there for about four years. I gained a ton of experience uh, working with all sorts of diverse learners um, and, and really just encountering every advising situation that you can possibly think of of working with students. For students, you know, who are, you know, ahead of working with students who are getting up at two in the morning and working their first job before they went to their second job, before they took classes at two o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, you know, students coming from abroad. I worked for some students. I worked with a, a very close student of mine uh, who came from Somalia and trying to help him navigate that through the advising process myself. Um, so I had some wonderful experiences working in advising at Springfield Technical Community College. And I was lucky enough, um, you know, throughout my time to see this opportunity at Elms to become director of advising. Uh, and I applied and I, I again, I got lucky, uh, and I'm here now at Elms College. Um, I've been here for about four and a half, five years, going on four and a half, five years now. Uh, was recently promoted to assistant academic dean, you know, last academic year. Um, and I oversee the offices of advising, tutoring, um, disability services, career, uh, as well as our Center for Student Success Welcome Desk, which is like our hub of student support here. Um, so my transition to advising certainly kind of came through a bunch of different inroads. And I think that my story sometimes resonates with students to talk with them about, you know, what it's like to go through some of the challenges of going through the community college world and, and working full time and trying to pay for school and then making that transition to a university and what's that's like and organizing classes on Tuesday, Thursdays to make Monday, Wednesday, Friday work for you to go to school, to go to work, to pay for college. Like, I think that some of the narratives that I've been able to share with students about my experience has really helped me be a better advisor. Um, you know, and now I still do get to do advising. Um, I still do work directly with students, but I do that on top of all the management and administrative stuff that I have to do on the side as well. So, um, but it is still a, a wonderful and rewarding profession to be in. Um, and again, I think that advisors can have the most impact, you know, on students and their experience in, in post-secondary ed. And so that's kind of how I came into advising and kind of where I'm where I'm at today. Yeah, I'll definitely agree with you about the being an advisor being very competitive. Um, I know for Cal State San Bernardino, maybe I would say for us, it's probably been the last maybe three years where we've noticed a big change in how competitive it can be to, you know, have a position open and for a lot of folks uh, applying for those positions. I'll say when I first started in 2013 as an advisor, I'd already been working on campus at Cal State San Bernardino since uh, 2004. Being an advisor wasn't mm -hmm. necessarily something that uh, was a lot of people were wanting to do. Um, so when I got in, not that it was easy, but mm -hmm. I would say it wasn't as much much competitiveness there as it is now. Um, and then you also mentioned uh, uh, Law and Order SVU. I mean, probably one of the the few shows, the few spinoffs that outlasted the original series. <laughs> uh, a little tidbit there. Now, you're talking about uh, being the assistant academic dean at Elms College, as well as you still have the ability to see students and, and work with them. So I guess that leads into this question for maybe for advisors and also for students. What advice do you have for advisors that are working with students during this time? And maybe along with that, any thoughts or suggestions on how we can keep our students engaged uh, because 
for some schools, it's maybe a hybrid approach right now. For others, like uh, our school, 99% of our classes are still virtual. Yeah, it, it's tough. I think one of the things that's come out of this is the power of technology with advising. I, I don't think that, you know, at least for some of the places that I've held positions in, as well as other colleagues that I know, um, where advising technology hasn't been at the, uh, using technology for advising hasn't been at the forefront of everybody's ideas. Uh, now it's like a, it's, it's like our main go-to, you know? So I think that what's come out of this is the ability for us to rethink how we work with students and how we use technology to help them. And so now it's, it's all about, you know, do you want to meet in person for us who have classes still? Do you want to do a zoom meeting? I think advisors can be more accessible to students now with technology that just wasn't kind of the main way of how we used advising platforms. Um, so I know that a lot of colleges now have, again, adopted platforms like, you know, Zoom and things like that. And so I think it makes us more accessible to students. And I think that moving forward, when we get past all of this, I think we've changed the landscape where advising now can use these type of platforms to be more accessible to students. Because I think now it's more important than ever to understand and realize that everybody's going through God knows what right now. Um, and as advisors, it's, it's important for us to help them navigate what that looks like. And for advising, we touch on every part of the post-secondary experience. Advisors need to know something about financial aid. You need to know something about student accounts. Like you have to understand teaching modalities and how classes are being taught. You need to understand the curriculum. Like advisors need to know everything. I mean, maybe that's why it's so competitive now is because, I think advisors are underrated. You know, everybody thinks like, oh, you just talk with students. Like you really need to understand the university experience or the college experience mm -hmm. to be an effective advisor. And so, you know, now that we have this opportunity for this technology platforms, we, we can engage with students in different manners and we need to be more responsive in regards to what they're going through, because really it could be absolutely anything. It could be, I can't get you know, forms that need to go to the health center to lift a hold because I can't see my primary care. Like, I mean, who can see anybody right now? Um, so, you know, I think that we have an opportunity now to be more available to our students. Um, and then more and ever, more than ever now, it's important to think about how do we respond to those needs? I think it's going the extra mile for students with the advising process. So it's not just about saying, I need you to go to this office, but it's, it's connecting them. It's, jumping on a Zoom with that person and quickly talking about the situation because uh, advisors are really going to be the link to creating, you know, retention rates that stick in this process for students and students being able to persist at this time because, again, everybody is struggling with something. And so their ability to continue on in where we are right now will be dependent on a lot of flexibility from faculty uh, and as well as advisors knowing just how to navigate student need and, and ease whatever concerns that student have and, and eliminate barriers that student have students have at this time. Uh, and that's kind of the approach that I'm really working with right now. I'm trying to be responsive to students, you know, even I check my email a couple of times after I get out of work, you know, just because I know that, you know, a student who has a problem at five o'clock and emails you and really needs something that's a long time until you get back to the office at 8.30 the next day. And so even if it's just, I'll touch base with you, don't worry about it. Um, in this moment right now, I think we just, advisors just need to go that extra mile. Um, and so I think across the board, our, our advising community knows that. Uh, and I think that'll be the, the, 
the real important piece that gets us through where we are right now. Yeah, I think some really great practical insights there, Brian. And I suppose building on that, you were almost, you know, pressing into in an article you wrote. And I know we're going to touch on another article later, but you wrote an article uh, addressing the academic and institutional challenges of community college adult learners using advising practice. And there was a lot in that when I was reading that in preparation for the the interview where I went, so much of this is applicable to the now and what we're doing and hybrid and online learning and what you talked about advisors needing to know everything. Yeah, because advisors are right now dealing with different pedagogies. We have in-person, in in-class learners, we have online learners, we have hybrid learners. We're, we're trying to juggle that. And I know that um, you made a, a number of suggestions in that article around kind of specialized advising support. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that there are um, things that different institutions could take from what from that piece to implement to to build on the on the support uh, alongside the practical suggestions that you you've already offered. Yeah, when I wrote that piece, um, I, you know, I did a lot of research in my doctoral program on community college adult learners, and and specifically because I was working in a community college setting and understanding that you know, when you're looking at the community college setting specifically, you have a lot of students that are taking night classes. You have a lot of students that are online as well. And uh, community colleges have moved in some ways, you know, at least some of the ones that I've been exposed to in my research and, and through my network um, that have advising till maybe seven o'clock at night. Um, sometimes they have an online advisor who's available. But I, I mean, I think it's 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 really understanding that the traditional 830 to 438 to 5 advising office that handles the mass registration of our traditional day students is just not enough to support those adult learners. And so we need to rethink, um, you know, how we work with adult learners and how we support them through the advising process. And again, that is looking at non-traditional ways to offer advising services to students. And quite frankly, here we are like zoom is it like, you know, I mean, I did, I think I, I actually did the research for that. And, and a lot of the writing for that, I think in 2018, uh, 1718, I think it was published in 2019. Um, but I mean, this was about three years ago when I was sitting there, like we need to rethink how the modalities and platforms for advising that we're using. And then now it's like, this is going to be our new normal, you know, and, but what a way to connect with adult learners, you know, at non-traditional opportunities that they have, you know? So if, if you do want to talk to me at, at five or, or six o'clock and you actually want to have something that's more than a phone conversation to actually really make a personal connection in that advising experience. Here we are, you know, and we can transcend those boundaries for online adult learners as well, you know, using the powers of technology. Um, and I think that, you know, we can mold all of those things that we think about that are necessary in the advising process about talking with them about their experience, helping them understand the different ways that teachers teach, you know, which may just provide some insight into why I'm struggling with this class um, you know, and using the power of where we are right now with technology to support those students, I think is, is really, it's ironic, I guess that, you know, three years ago, I was kind of looking at this and being like, what are we going to do here? And then 
it takes, unfortunately, a world pandemic to push us all into realizing that not only do we need to use this technology to support our students, but it's probably going to become the new standard for how we advise and how we work with all different populations, but specifically looking at adult learners who cannot and don't really have the opportunity to fall into those 830 to 5, 830 to 430 traditional advising services that we normally serve those students with. Uh, I feel like their advising experience still matters. Uh, and institutions have a responsibility to provide the best service that they can. And so this is a platform, for instance, where we can we can change the landscape for those students as far as supporting them. So. Yeah, it's crazy how relevant things are and even just also how fast we can change things when we're kind of forced to in a way. When we're forced to, yes. <laughs> I mean, if you think of just paper petitions or processes that within maybe a couple of weeks have become online uh, when usually it was like, well, this is a process that might take a little bit longer, but when it needs to happen, it happens. Exactly. And again, it, it just seems so normal now that we're on Zoom, you know, but when I was, it was funny because I was kind of, I was advocating for all these pieces conceptually in this, in the article. Um, I did, you know, I did have some different examples, but uh, we use like this old platform at Springfield Technical Community College where it was like an advising chat. So I would be online, you know, and somebody would hit the advising chat button and they would see an advisor. I think some schools even still adopt this in, in our Western Mass area, um, you know, but now we're having a fluid conversation. We can see each other. We can talk to each other. We can react to things that we're saying like and it's just like this could have been the advising experience. But I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, we we just made the connection, you know, at the time that we needed to. And so I hope now that institutions realize that we can take these things away and, you know, and, and move them into the new normal and then use them for the populations that really need our services, um, which again, could be, again, our first generation students, our adult learners who just need access. They need access to someone. They need a human connection and that education experience. And the advisor is it. Now, uh, if we transition to over, like, let's say to management. So when we, we've been kind of setting this interview up for the last few months. And when we initially were chatting back and forth on LinkedIn, uh, the topic of management came up, or in this case, a uh, middle management. Now, for you, like you've had various management type positions. I mean, you've been a director, um, assistant academic dean. For you, I'm always curious for those in management, like what what was kind of like what got you into wanting to pursue management? So I wanted to I really started getting interested in institutional advising models and the concept of advising management because of the dysfunction, unfortunately, that I saw, you know, at the institutions uh, that I that I past worked at. And uh, again, it's what I realized, though, is, is that it's not a fault of those institutions per se. This is widespread um, at, from my dissertation research that came out and then which came out of one of these publications, a publication that we're going to talk about. And then one that I'm working on right now through Nakata um, is that the organizational structures that we set up for advising almost work against us in some ways. Um, we have uh, advising directors who, you know, oversee an advising unit. Uh, and they may, you know, let's say we take a community college of 12,000 students, they may, they may work with the first 2,000 uh, first years coming in, or they may work with a specific population who may be in remedial coursework. Um, and then we see that fa- uh, students are dispersed all to all faculty within the college. And 
you know, the coordination of working with everybody, especially when you don't have any authority over people in other departments or faculty members is, is tough. And what I was ending up, what I ended up seeing before I started doing this research was, you know, we're trying to get other people in other areas or faculty that are working with students to address these issues that they have, whether it's students who need, you know, schedule adjustments, whether there's a problem going on that a student needs some support. Um, and, the coordination and was just not there. It was lacking. You could never, there's always a lot of stuff going on. And I don't want to turn this into a faculty or don't respond as advisors kind of podcast. Um, but there, there are challenges sometimes with this uh, and it's clearly documented in the literature. And so, you know, what made me want to explore the concept of management and then also move into management was to look at these systems and figure out how do we, how do we fix this? You know, how do we, how do we look at advising differently? Uh, we have, you know, seven institutional advising models. Uh, and again, they're all kind of lumped into these concepts of either centralized or decentralized or shared models. And, and really what I sought to figure out in my dissertation research, and again, which also kind of helped me in my process as being director and then now assistant academic dean was, is the, what I am seeing just in my own lens or is this widespread, you know, and I wanted to focus on community colleges because community colleges are really, um, I'm a product of the community college system. I love community colleges. I think that they're under-researched, they're under-talked about, uh, and they serve the most vulnerable students that they need more resources and not less. Um, and so I ended up going off in my dissertation research and interviewing 13 uh, different advising directors at 13 different colleges in, in Northeast Mass or in the Northeast region. Um, which if you think about it, that's like it bigger than some of the state systems that we have in the United States. Um, so, and I, I talk with them about where they were at uh, and, and what was going on. And what I realized was, is that it's not just a vacuum where I was, but people are experiencing this, experiencing this, all over the place. Uh, and so what got me wanting to go into management and then eventually researching more and talking about it more is, is that the problem is, is that the people who are on the receiving end of this unfortunate, bad coordination, whatever we want to call it, it's the students, <laughs> you know, it's the students who are the ones, you know, that may not have gotten that outreach or they fell through the cracks or this or that. And so we almost have a responsibility in the advising world to try to fix this because our whole job is supporting students. And so if this is not just something that I see at an institution that I've been at, but other institutions that I'm hearing from individuals, um, I think it's important to address. And so that's kind of how I, I, I fell into writing a little bit about this topic and then why I wanted to go into, into management was because at least I can try my best to fix the own, fix the systematic issues within my own institution as best as I possibly can, you know, but at the same time, you know, I'm only one person in a big higher ed world and a big, you know, organization, you know, which has umpteenth amount of full-time faculty, part-time faculty and other bureaucratic administration all over the place. So um, have I been successful in completely changing Elms College? Um, not yet. Um, but I think that, I think that we are trending in the right direction, certainly, um, you know, with regards to looking at advising and certainly, you know, making 
better inroads in this. So well, there's that famous saying, isn't there, about if you think that uh, you're too small to make an impact, you need to consider uh, the power of the mosquito. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, so um, I, you you have continued. Uh, you haven't. You're not just working in the area, and and you mentioned this, Brian. You have continued to re- research and to to publish, um, and and you mentioned um, one of the the articles, um, which is uh, community college advising coordinators understanding understanding their roles as middle managers. Um, and I know you mentioned another that you're working on for NACAD at the moment. Um, and you, you gave us the background. Maybe you could talk us through a little bit more and give listeners uh, a little more understanding of um, of those pieces. Sure. So the I have a the article you were, that you referred to, the Community College Advising Coordinators, the perspective from middle management is an article that's coming out with the Community College Enterprise um, this fall. And that was, I split my dissertation up into a couple of different areas to try to, to work through some of the publications. And this one specifically focused on their role as middle managers. Uh, so it really, middle managers themselves have a unique role, whether they're in higher ed, whether you're in anywhere. Um, you know, you have the perspective to have some influence on the strategy of the institution, on the operations and functions, but you also have those limitations as well. Uh, you're not senior management, so you don't make those big executive decisions, but you're, you're also not on the ground working as well. And so what's unique about middle managers, though, is that and it, the middle managers that are advising coordinators, and I use that term to reference back to Kramer's work and one of the first articles that was published in our Nakata Journal in 1981 uh, was the advising coordinator managing from the top down. Uh, and <laughs> Raymer talks about kind of this horrific experience about being an advising coordinator in that article uh, and just how, how do you manage this process? We don't supervise faculty, the faculty are the advisors. Like, what am I supposed to do in this situation? I, I can't dictate things to people, but I'm supposed to dictate things to people. And ironically, you know, that was the first article that was published in our association's journal. And the research that I did goes right back to the same scenario. We're still living it. And I think that's important to highlight is is that, you know, Kramer wrote about this in 1981. And he wrote about the challenges of being a middle manager and specifically an advising middle manager, because not only are you subject to all the bureaucratic um, structures within middle management, but now as advising middle managers, we also have to adhere to our institutional advising models. (laughs) So it's not just a matter of being a middle manager. It's being a middle manager that then is subject to whatever institutional advising model you have to work through. So it's almost like you get hit twice um, in middle management and advising middle management. And so what I did was, again, I I interviewed 13 people um, and I talked to them about, you know, I really wanted to understand their role and what were, you know, what, if any, were, you know, some of the barriers that they were facing Um, you know, as middle managers in higher ed. And and really some of the things that came out from it was, number one, advising coordinators, they faced barriers from other staff within the college in trying to move through advising initiatives, whether it's trying to advocate for um, a change in advising practices or to focus more on intrusive or proactive advising with students. It ended up being that the people that were on the same team, were all on the same team, were ended up being some of the barriers that that were, you know, within their own, um, you know, within their way of trying to change or create proactive change for advising. 
And so, and again, it wasn't overwhelming amount, but it was about, I think the first finding, I think had about seven or eight that fell into that code. And so, but you think about it, that's seven or eight people at seven or eight different community colleges with 10, 15, 20,000 students at it, talking about their challenges that they are having as the people who are conceptually responsible for advising uh, and end up, you know, speaking to me about the fact that the barriers for them are actually the, the people who are on their team, uh, which is which is scary, though. Um, and so and I, I really applaud a lot of the people that participated in this study because, you know, they said some pretty tough things. And I had to hold to confidentiality here. And, you know, some reviewers throughout this process with some of my research have been like, you know, we need to know where this is coming from, who, you know, what are these colleges, what states did you do it in? I'm like, I can't tell you this. Some of these people have said some pretty tough things about their administration. Like, we don't have the resources. I don't have the authority. They really laid their heart out on the line with talking about, you know, what am I supposed to do in this position? You know, I had one narrative, um, you know, come from one of uh, the middle managers that I interviewed, an advising director who said, mm-hmm. you know, I know that students are going to be assigned to X person as their advisor. I'll leave it to everybody. I won't disclose whether they were professional or faculty. And they just knew that they weren't going to have a good experience because they just knew that this person didn't really value advising in any way, shape or form. And so being having to sit with that, as somebody who is responsible for the quality of advising at the institution and knowing that the bureaucratic structure that exists, that you can't do anything about that to change it. I mean, you can try to do your own intervention with your own staff, you know, but this person is, you know, they have somebody who is assigned their advisor who's supposed to work with them. You know, sometimes union contracts and things dictate who goes where. Uh, And that's just, you know, certainly the public higher ed sector, that's certainly how that works. And so, And again, I have quotes that say, like, you know, there's not much I can do in my role right now. Like, I don't think that they view me as a person of authority, you know, when talking about advising. Like, people really, you know, these middle managers really laid it out on the line and really talked about the challenges of being a middle manager in higher ed. And not only a middle manager in higher ed, which is a topic that we've known, there are challenges within middle management that date back to the 60s and 70s in in the literature, Uh, But to be an advising middle manager and just to be able to, you know, throw your hands up in frustration because you can't turn the tide with changing the philosophy of the institution or you can't turn the tide with working with this department to support students better. And you know that they're especially with community colleges, which already have lower tension rates to begin with, understanding what's at stake, understanding that these students you know, if they have one experience that's tough or two, along with everything else that's going on in their life, they may not persist, you know. And so, only, you know, having to not only own that, I guess, but I guess just understand the realities of what it's like to be in that position um, is certainly tough. And so the article has a lot of great and thorough quotes, you know, from these different, you know, advising directors and coordinators who have talked about their roles and What I also found that was interesting was, you know, institutions, though, it doesn't have to be this way because there's actually some light at the end of the tunnel. And I found that people who had elevated positions, um, positions that were labeled dean positions or assistant dean positions, they 
had creative ways to put the person who was responsible for advising and maybe oversee something else or maybe be elevated in a role that connects them more with uh, faculty divisions. Um, I found that those elevated positions, even in just status, had a, a major impact on their view of their role within the institution and their ability to feel confident that they can affect change. And so, you know, one of the quotes was from somebody who was a dean um, who was responsible for advising. So there was no director in his position. It was just a dean. And uh, she also had an affiliation with transfer. And she also worked with, you know, of the faculty and had really good relationships with the other academic deans. And she was so confident in influencing advising practices. She's like, I, things are peachy. <laughs> if I need something, I just go over to this dean at the dean's meeting and, you know, we'll talk about it and we'll get the support that we need. Um, And then I hear from advising directors who are just at the bottom of this bureaucratic system that don't have access to anybody, but maybe an assistant dean that's above them or, you know, and they're not at the table for these conversations institutionally. You know, their role isn't designed to have that, that breadth and depth through the institution. And so they're just they kind of throw their hands up. I don't, I don't know. They don't know what else to do, you know, without just continuing to barrel down the hatches and say, this is a problem and we need to address it. And so uh, nothing that I found in my research is, is, you know, has changed the, the literature on middle management, but I think it's brought into the perspective that advising middle managers, there needs to be more attention paid to this position. There needs to be more attention paid to the depth of, their reach within the institution, especially if you're trying to affect a change that will lead to persistence and student success and retention. Uh, And if you don't address it and you just leave your advising directors as just these kind of middle managers that are just swimming in the bureaucratic sea of higher education, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to meet the outcomes that you want as an institution. And with the article, I mean, you were interviewing those at community colleges and uh, you defined or you had, you listed as middle management. So for those that may think they know what middle management is, what would fit under the middle management definition? Uh, So mostly everybody that I interviewed had the title of uh, director. Um, You know, there were some people who had assistant dean titles. And so what was what was important for me within the study for this article was uh, to find people who had middle management roles, meaning that were under that kind of vice president dean level ish, or if they had a, a dean title in some capacity, that they still were in the day-to-day coordination of advising services. They still were on the ground working, you know, to try to manage, you know, the the advising services for the institution. And so I think 13 out of the, or 10 out of the 13 people that participated in the study had director titles, which would really fall within that advising middle management. You know, you, you oversee a unit, you oversee the advising center. Um, or if you're looking at it from the perspective, conceptually at four-year schools, you may be um, an advising director who you're on your own. You know, you're a faculty only model of advising and you're just an advising director that supports faculty or you're an advising director that have one or two staff, but then the majority of advising happens on the faculty side. So the middle manager is, again, is, is, is kind of in that hub where, you know, again, they're, they don't really rise to the dean level uh, or if they are the dean level, they're still doing, you know, the groundwork of, of coordinating advising services and really, the brunt work of managing a, an advising center or department or something like that. And so that was really the aim for my study. Uh, I didn't turn people away who had a dean title, but were still in the weeds working. 
um, because again, that was really the most important thing to me was to grasp uh, really finding those people who are doing the work. Um, and really, I think it was more of the directors who, who mentioned that they didn't have the institutional voice or the seat at the table um, necessary, which is a common concept within the middle management literature. It's, it's you know, I'm, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not with the people on the ground, but I'm not up in the conversations that really make any change. And so I, I'm just here. And then, Brian, maybe drawing on that experience from talking to the the people and the research that you've done, for those out there who are listening who want to get involved in administration, who are looking to take the step into those middle management positions, what would your advice be to them? Well, I would say that, number one, I think some of the most positive stories that I heard were for people who had supervisors as well, who were very supportive of them. And so understand you're not going to change, especially in a union environment. If you're in a public institution, you're not just going to change the world overnight. Um, so understanding, you know, and certainly being, you know, understanding that if you have a supportive supervisor who can advocate for you, somebody who, again, it may be a, a dean or a vice president of student affairs or academic affairs that report, you know, that you report to, who can advocate for you as well, I think will make your life a thousand times easier. Um, I think if you want to go into advising management, um, you know, it, it's still, it's a rewarding place because at the end of the day, you don't go into advising unless you want to be here. I mean, you really don't. It's a very specialized area. There's a lot of knowledge necessary. There's a lot of student interaction. Uh, there's a lot of ups and downs. <laughs> there's joys, there's heartaches as you see students struggling uh, and so, you know, to go into a management role, I think uh, you just have to, I think that theory is important. I think, you know, understanding the literature that we have available to us in the advising world and understanding the connection uh, with that certainly is important to be in management and to really understand and assess what's going on at your institution. Um, and so currently right now, um, I've been doing some work with a fellow Nakata colleague uh, to write an article on the concept of coupling. Um, and it's a, it's a, um, it's Weick's theory from 1976, the loosely coupled systems and the, the ability that I've had to kind of apply theory to my own world makes sense to me as an administrator about how I can effectively try to create change. And so we have a great wealth of body of literature in our advising literature, whether you're looking at our institutional advising models literature, whether you're looking at Tukey's work in 96 that talked about advising systems uh, you know, we've taught, we've had some work that's been done as well. Um, looking at, I think it's Mudassar in 2006, and I forget the author in 2017 that wrote on, um, it was a case study research that was done that looked specifically um, at the structure of the institution and, and then did a thorough case study analysis and found out that regardless of what it said on the piece of paper about the structure of the institution, how it worked, that's not how it worked in practice. All of those things that we can learn about in theory can help influence our work and make our lives easier. Uh, and so if you want to get into a management role, I think that you need to dive into the literature. I think that it helps you to understand conceptually what's going on at other institutions, what theories are going, what theories can be applied to your current work. Uh, and then also just understand that if you go into management, you're just, you're going to have some headaches. Um, but advising makes it special. And so I think when you can create some systematic change, um, you know, and especially within the world of advising, you understand what kind of impact that's going to have on students. 
you understand that what's that, what kind of impact that's going to have on your college community. Uh, and really, the outcomes are all going to be positive. Uh, so, you know, taking the step to administration for those who want to take the step into advising administration, um, you know, I think more is needed, more is needed to be done. Um, and hopefully research like some of the stuff that I do and research that's already out there can help influence you try to push for these best practices, try to push for change. Um, because yeah, as much as I credit Kramer's work, uh, you know, and the first article that was published in 81 on this topic, I don't want to be talking about this 30 years from now that we're still struggling with the same systematic changes uh, and challenges, um, you know, in our advising administration. So uh, hopefully we can make inroads in that. And that's kind of something that I've, you know, certainly wanted to de dedicate some of my scholarship and work to, uh, which is to get this information out there so that we can really, you know, people that are higher up than me, <laughs> Uh, potentially may read this and, and look at it and say, we need to really take a look at our advising structure to ensure that the outputs are all aimed towards supporting students and, and to make sure it's efficient, to make sure that uh, our advising directors and our advisors have the tools necessary to support students and that students don't fall through the bureaucratic cracks of the institution. Because that's the worst part about it is, is that if it's, if it's us, if we can if we know that there's a crack in the system and we can't stop students from falling through it, that's, that's the worst. And so I think, you know, if you're going to take that step into administration, you know that there are challenges and but you're going to rise to the occasion and you want to make change because it's that's inside you. Yeah, I will say when I was reading your article and I saw some of the citations from the 70s and 80s, at first I was like, are these from a long time ago? But then I was like, but it's yeah, it still happens today. So which is. Yeah. Yes. Uh, some reviewers of my work as well in the peer review process have looked at me and they're like, uh, you know, why are you bringing this literature from the 70s and 80s? I'm like, because it's still relevant. I was like, you know, I, I don't know how else to say this politely, um, you know, and I hope no people who have reviewed my work may be listening to this or not, but it's important. Like, you know, we there was like a flurry of research in the 80s and 90s talking about institutional advising models. I think Pardee did some work in, in 20, 2004 uh, categorizing them into the three centralized, decentralized and shared models. And then this is kind of just falling off the radar, you know, and it's just this is what we got. Um, and when I was diving through the advising literature, I was like, you know, there's nothing on the individual experiences of the people. You know, we always talk about student success and we're looking at students and retention rates in advising. We look at different philosophies and, and intrusive advising and its effect on student success and all that. But we're, we're, we almost forget the people who are coordinating all of this. And what are they going through? What are their stories? Um, and I did a deep dive through the literature. And again, I'm, I'm human, so stuff may still be out there, but I've been doing this for a little while and I haven't found stuff, you know, that focuses on the administrators and really focuses on what are they going through. Uh, our, our latest handbook, I think that was published a couple of years ago, actually maybe 10 years ago now, had some stuff on it, um, you know, but it was very broad, you know, very broad kind of just these are the challenges that advising directors face and, and this is what they're going through. And it was about, a you know, a couple pages and I was like, there needs to be more here because there's a lot more that needs to be said. And so, um, so yes, I, I highlight that old ancient literature, you know, and I cite that in my article and I'm, I'm not going to pull it out. And, you know, if people aren't going to publish it, well, find somewhere else to publish it because it's important. Uh, it's important to make that connection and understand that, you know, Kramer wrote about this 40 years ago. And we're still talking about some of the challenges that he wrote 40 years ago. And so as a, as a profession, as an advising profession, we 
owe it to our students to look into this more. Um, and so that's kind of what I've dedicated some of the, uh, some of my scholarship into looking at. And I'll continue to cite those articles from the 70s and 80s until until we try to fix this. Now, you were mentioning at the beginning of the interview mm-hmm. that uh, with your role, you oversee a, lot, a few different uh, areas, departments, different teams that you have. You still meet with students. So in, in your role, how are you making sure that those on your team are still brought to the table um, and are not, you know, shuffled around or fallen through the cracks? And, and also for the students that, that you meet with and that your team meets with, how are you making sure that they're not negatively impacted by a lot of the different things going on? It's a constant struggle. So, I mean, you know, we're, our, our school does, again, our retention rate is in the 80s uh, for the College of Our Lady of the Elms, our Elms College. So we are doing something right. Um, but don't get me wrong. Like, there's more that we can do to be better. And so I work in a faculty-only advising model uh, with, um, you know, they have hired me. They hired me as a director of advising, um, but I was just a support to faculty uh, and additional support to students. Uh, we didn't have an advising center here at Elms College or anything like that. Uh, and so what I've had to do is relationship build, um, you know, because again, I, as a, you know, when I was an advising director, um, I was just this, you know, I, I had no supervision over faculty. I had no supervision over, you know, making sure that you did this or this in a timely manner, or did you follow up with this student when I, when we said we needed to or not? Um, and I think, people who work in faculty only models will talk about some of those challenges and and, and how do you overcome those challenges? Well, it's, it's relationship building. And so for my staff, you know, and for the departments that I oversee, um, including them in everything that I possibly can, as far as meetings are concerned, uh, listening to on the ground of what they're dealing with, with their students. Uh, I have a very good relationship with my vice president as well, which I said, uh, you know, as being in this kind of still middle management, upper middle management realm, um, I have somebody who can advocate for me. I have somebody where if I'm still tugging on somebody in the faculty world that says, hey, I need you to get this done. I, I, I need you to assign these advisors. Like, I need you to do it now. Um, you know, I have somebody that can support me in that process as well. Um, so, uh, you know, as you know, from from the management perspective, I think that you know, making sure that all of my staff that their voices are heard, making sure they're the experts that are on the ground working with students, uh, they know you know what they need and how do I turn around? I mean, enroll for management. I'm an advocate for my staff. I'm a, I'm the voice to senior senior leadership, senior senior leadership, so cabinet, um, and so I try to take my past experiences and my reflections on my work to create those avenues for my staff to have those voices um, and then to ensure that they're not lost in that bureaucratic management chain, that those stories and what's needed goes to those who can ultimately make those big, big decisions, which are senior vice president level candidate cabinet members, um, you know, so that we can always improve. And so I think, like I said, we do a good job of that here, you know, at Elms with, you know, with our outcomes, our graduation rates and things like that. But there's always room for improvement. Um, And again, I think I can just take some of my research and apply it practically to my own work as best as I possibly can. Brian, I think this has been absolutely fascinating. I know that before the interview, I had read that one of your students, I think, said something in in the region, I'm I'm paraphrasing, around being a straight talker and uh, engaging and a great motivator. And I think 
to certainly for me and I imagine for Matt and for listeners, they will have noticed all those qualities in your presentation here. You made the topic just so engaging. And I mean, for me, I now really want to engage more with with the literature. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for taking the time to join with us uh, today. I look forward to hopefully meeting you at a future NACADA event or uh, conference and um, we will certainly include uh, some of the links to your work in the show notes so that listeners can uh, read more as well but this has been fantastic thanks I appreciate it thank you guys for taking the time Uh, and like I said I think uh, we have a breadth of literature that's available to us you know that Nakata has provided uh, I hope that people will take advantage of it, and, and I hope they do take advantage of it, uh, and be able to address a lot of these, you know, potential, you know, concerns that we have, but also promise to our students to make things, you know, as best as we possibly can for them. So, thank you for having me, guys. I, I, I really appreciate the conversation. Thanks so much to Brian, to Sean, and to you, our listeners, for tuning in to us. We we do appreciate it. Our next episode is due out actually on the same day as Nakata's annual conference begins. That is Monday, the 5th of October. Yep. And don't forget to follow us on social media. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Advising Podcast. And as always, keep advising, stay safe, everyone, and hey, see you next time. Don't wanna complicate ya, complicate ya.